All right. I think that's that's me then. So uh, quick question for undetermined amount of points. Uh, what did we talk about last week? Just generally. Dennis. That was the, you know, Dennis, that was probably the best answer I've ever heard. Uh, yes, that's exactly what we talked about last week. Um, good thing we can all read lips because you didn't unmute yourself, but we were blown away by the profundity and, uh, oh, oh Mary's going to unmute you now. No, she's not. Can you hear us now? There. Yeah, Dennis, can you, I think now's the, now's the best time we've ever had though to Thank you for all the IT and tech work you were doing at Crestwick for all of those years behind the scenes. Uh, some of us weren't sure you were an expert, but now we are after seeing how, how you can accommodate all of these very difficult problems like unmuting yourself on Zoom. So do you want to try that one more time and, and enlighten us again? Okay, I'll hold, the, I'll hold the space bar down a little longer this time. It, um, we were, you were discussing uh, the Trinity and uh, Jesus as part of that Trinity uh, being God, the, the different evidences for his, uh, his uh, deity. All right, I'll accept that. So that's a good reminder for me then to know where to start. So last week we covered aspects of the deity of Christ, not all of them. Uh, there are actually a variety of other ways of seeing how the New Testament depicts Jesus as uh, divine that we didn't look at. Um, some of them are a little bit more subtle than others. So last week we were sort of looking at the the more obvious ones. Uh, I'm not I'm not sure exactly how much time we're going to have uh, to cover a lot of things next week. If I remember looking at the syllabus that Steph created uh, without consulting me, there's a lot of topics I'm supposed to cover that I haven't yet got to. One of which I believe was even like, what did Jesus teach or something along those lines. And that's actually a lot of material uh, to try to work through. So I'm not quite sure exactly how much uh, we'll be able to cover next week. We might look at some of those more subtle uh, hints that Christ is, is divine. Uh, they're really rich, very fascinating. But uh, we looked at the more obvious ones last week. And this week, what I want to do is I want to look at material that you're probably familiar with. It's not that difficult at the beginning. Uh, but then the way it's brought together can actually sort of, it, it can be some of the most difficult material there is when it comes to actually thinking about who Jesus is and his nature and identity. So we'll start easy. And that's just with uh, looking at some biblical material that establishes the humanity of Jesus. And again, probably like his deity, these are things that we can almost take for granted, but it's actually really important because what the church had to do, and this side of, you know, 2000 years of church history, it's easy to take a lot of this for granted, but the early church had to work through biblical data and then formulate an understanding of who Jesus was. I mean, not just what he did, but who was he? And there are a variety of ways, so a lot of false starts in terms of trying to determine who, how we should understand uh, the identity and the nature and the person of Jesus. So the material isn't that difficult in a lot of ways. 
But when you try to actually synthesize it, so when you're doing that uh, sort of, when you're philosophizing about, you know, who Jesus is, then you start to run into a lot of difficulty in terms of sort of comprehension. So the, it's interesting because the material is simple, but the understanding is vastly complicated. So first, uh, in terms of Jesus having uh, a human nature, one of the things to note that I believe actually we noted last week is that at you know, the beginning of Matthew's gospel, you have a genealogy. And so you're establishing sort of that there is a human lineage that Jesus stands in. Now, in Luke's gospel, the lineage tracks back, I guess actually Sarah mentioned last week, that uh, Matthew's genealogy is stylized. You know, so there's, it, it's in 14 generations, and it shows the, the key turning points in God's redemptive program. Luke's genealogy tracks backwards, only one in scripture which does, which is interesting. And it terminates with um, the son of Adam, the son of God. I think we'll probably will talk more about this next week. So I think the title son of God is really important and often misunderstood. But one of the things that Luke's genealogy is doing is it's sort of demonstrating that the Messiah who comes into the world isn't just the Messiah of the Jews. That is, Matthew terminates with Abraham, but Luke tracks back past Abraham to Adam himself. And in one sense, Adam is the son of God. So you're looking, you're, you're creating analogies. That is, you have a, a universal aspect. That is, it's a global aspect. The, everyone comes from Adam. And so if the Messiah, ultimately, he's not just from Abraham. And Luke wants you to know he actually comes from Adam himself. And of course, that's obvious at one level. But it, it works well with one of the emphases. Luke has a particular emphasis in his gospel on the universality of Christ. So in Luke's gospel, you get more of an emphasis on Jesus having good relationships with uh, Pharisees and Romans, for example. Uh, he has more of a ministry with Gentiles, and he's reaching out more to Gentiles sort of transparently in Luke's gospel than in the other ones. So Luke has this emphasis that the Jewish Messiah is actually for everyone. And of course, that fits very well when you remember that Luke actually, Luke's two books are actually one book. Luke and Acts shouldn't be divided. In fact, a lot of times in scholarship, they're hyphenated um, because the only reason they're separate is that Luke and Acts both are about the size of writing you could easily contain on one scroll. So if you had, you know, word processing programs in the first century, like we have today, Luke Acts would be one book. In fact, you can actually almost be thankful that they didn't have word processing programs back in that day, or else uh, Luke Acts would be like 1,500 pages. I mean, it'd, it'd be massive. So they had to be very selective, just given physical parameters and resources in the first century. So what we get is really the most important things. Now, uh, these genealogies, though, are, are providing some connection, obviously, with Christ and with the human race. Luke's genealogy starts by saying he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of so-and-so, and goes on and on. So you see there you have a little bit of, uh, a, little bit of a reminder that there is humanity, and there's a human lineage, but it's also adoptive. That there is something unique about Christ. Now, Romans 1, 3, and what I'm going to do, just so you know, is I'm just going to uh, cite a bunch of Bible verses over the next number of minutes. Uh, Romans 1, 3 says, you know, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life, 
was a descendant of David. And so here Paul is showing that there is, you know, a, a descent in humanity from David himself. That, of course, becomes very important in terms of son of David motif and theology. Then Revelation 5, 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the seven seals. And so you recall that that lion from the tribe of Judah imagery is originally drawn from Genesis 49, 9. And that's where Jacob is blessing his sons and it's sort of a prophetic blessing about what they what they are like now and what their future will be. And with Judah, there is this promise that, you know, compared with the imagery of Judah, you are a lion's cub, O Judah, et cetera, et cetera. And then the ruler's staff, it will remain with you until he who comes to, him, to, to which it belongs. And so you have this connection with, in Genesis 49 with uh, Judah and lions and kingly rule, culminating in one figure who will wield sort of the scepter of authority and royalty forever. Uh, you then have, uh, well, before we look at a little bit more of this, uh, just one note as well about the virgin conception. So we, we have for sure, we, we realize no you know, sort of human paternity when it comes to Jesus, but there is human genetics. I mean, so the conception takes place in the Virgin Mary. And we sometimes talk about the virgin birth and even really stalwart sort of evangelical conservative theologians refer to the virgin birth. So uh, J. Gresham Machen, uh, you know, about a hundred years ago has a book called The Virgin Birth and he's defending uh, the miraculous conception and all of the rest. The virgin birth is probably a slightly misleading term. Um, it's really owing to Roman Catholicism where the argument is that um, Mary, Mary's anatomy is kept intact uh, even during the delivery of Jesus. And so they refer to the virgin birth that way. Uh, probably it's a little bit more accurate to speak about the virgin conception rather than the virgin birth, um, just because of the sort of the overtones of the theology. So it shows that God um, could have created Jesus just like he created Adam. And so I'm not sure if you ever thought about this, but in terms of the, the Adam parallel with Jesus being the last Adam, Adam is created without a human father or mother. And God could very easily have formed Jesus out of the dust of the earth as well. And, and that would have been actually in some ways the most fitting parallel with how he created Adam. So why doesn't he? Why is it that one, you don't have an earthly human father, but two, you actually have a human mother? What's the point? Why bother with Mary? I mean, in some ways, it would seem a lot more convenient with the Adam parallel and also with the avoidance of, of transmission of sin and all of the rest, guilt and corruption. Why wouldn't you just have the son of God, like Adam, formed into the dust of the ground? And, and then God would breathe his spirit into him. I mean, that would be your best parallel. It'd avoid all kinds of problems too. Well, it would seem, frankly, the only reason why, you, why God doesn't do that, the only reason why you actually have the human mother is because God is establishing that this is a real human being, that as Jesus lives, 
a full human life with everything that we're familiar with. So, so he is conceived and he is, and he grows and he gestates in the womb of a woman and she carries him and then she gives him birth. Uh, like every other human being since Adam who has come into the world, this is one of the diagnostic features of humanity. And so God doesn't need Mary, but it's important for Jesus to have a human mother so that he actually, from the moment of conception, which is when life begins, from the very first instant of his life, he experiences all of the stages that every human being in the world experiences this side of Adam. So the virgin conception then shows divine paternity, but genuine humanity. And so that's really, that actually almost gives you, you know, a bit of a lens right from the very beginning about what Orthodox Christology is all about. Uh, you know, the father begets supernaturally someone who is fully human. And so this son is carried in the womb of the virgin. Now, if we had more time, and, and I realize that uh, from what I've from what I've heard, there's been a number of people have been complaining that these sessions go on too long. Anyway, uh, if I had a lot more time, what I would want to do is I'd want to actually go through a little bit of uh, parallel mythology from the Greek and Roman world, and also from some other world religions. Because one of the things that's common today is we start hearing a lot about how. And a lot of this is coming from, uh, you know, Fraser and the Golden Bough and this kind of uh, work that was sort of comparative religion work that was really popular, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, the kind of scholarship, which is, you know, actual scholars have well moved past this, but uh, the internet's just catching up to it. And, and that's sort of what you have, actually. In a lot of these discussions about Jesus online, um, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's amazing that, that we're using 21st century technology uh, to propagate uh, theories which were dismissed in the late, you know, 19th century. So it, it, it's, it's the, the thinking is completely outmoded and it's gaining all kinds of purchase because people who, who spend a lot of time, uh, you know, reading blogs uh, don't tend to be informed about these sorts of things, apparently. So it, it's this sort of comparative religious mythology that you get in the Golden Bough and other books. Uh, and the idea there is that the Christian story of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection is nothing more than a copycat of surrounding religious mythologies. And so one of the things that you have sort of globally is you have a dying and rising God myths. And so in a lot of mythologies and a lot of religions, you have these stories of deities that, that die and come back to life. And, well, sorry, I, I can't really get into it because I said I don't have time. This is how we get distracted, actually, is, see, everyone just gets me offline to go into these rabbit trails and we don't have time, but you won't trick me today. I said I wasn't going to talk about it and I'm not. Except to say this, because this is important, is that all of those dying, rising God myths, interestingly enough, None of them are resurrections. That is, none of them are once for all with a person coming back in a glorified human body from the dead. Uh, and none of them are none of them are datable historically. So that with uh, you know the bale and mott cycles, for example, it, it's all based on the seasons. That is, how do you know that bale is alive? Well, because the rains have come. How do you know that bale is dead? Well, because it's winter. 
And so he's continually being swallowed by the goddess Mott and then being sort of coming and dying and then coming back to life later in the spring. So it's all based on crop cycles and things like that. Uh, or, you know, in the Osiris myth in Egypt, for example, you know, Osiris is dismembered into 14 parts and 13 parts are found. He's sort of cobbled back together. And in this sort of zombified state, he rules in the, in the netherworld. Well, there's no meaningful sense in which that's even remotely like a resurrection. And yet these are the sorts of parallels which are reduced. And so the argument then is that, you know, Christians just copied these dying and rising God myths. One of the main ones actually comes from Mithras. Um, but we know, we know uh, the internet doesn't, but, but other people do, uh, that the Mithras dying and rising God myth comes after Christianity. And so to argue that you know, Christianity is based on it is just utterly absurd. You, you can't base your own view on something which develops a couple centuries later in another religion. Anyway, that's all for free. So what you have is you have this sort of this establishment of, uh, you know, Jesus as a human being. And the reason actually that I mentioned, you know, the, the parallels with pagan gods in terms of dying and resurrection and all of the rest is because you get the exact same thing in terms of virgin conception. You get all of these arguments that the virgin conception is a parallel or a copycat of other uh, myths in the surrounding areas where you have gods impregnating virgins and things like that. And although in those Greco-Roman myths, you do have, you know, a, a number of stories of gods impregnating women, uh, often they're not virgins, and often it's based on you know, really crass uh, acts of lust and deceit and things like that. So again, there's just absolutely no parallel whatsoever when it comes to uh, sort of the, the story in the Gospels and these stories from other religions and myths. Now, Matthew 1, 20 through 23 contains a very famous quote of Isaiah 7, 14. And that text to remind you says, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. Now, there's a lot in this text. Um, if we had more time, you know, we'd want to look at, at the context of Isaiah 7. And Isaiah 7 is clearly speaking of a young woman who is not a mother yet, but who will conceive and give birth to a son in Isaiah's time. Um, and the reason we know this is because the, uh, the son who is born, Emmanuel, is a sign that God is with the people. And they need this sign that God is with them because they're terrified of two kings around them. And the idea is that this son is going to be born. And before he grows up, the nations of these two kings that the king of Judah is afraid of are going to be laid to waste. Well, well that happens 700 years before Jesus is born. So this is not something which is immediately just pointing forward to Jesus in terms of a direct verbal prediction. It's a typology that is, it's a pattern in the same way that this young woman in Isaiah's day will conceive through natural causation. And that's going to be a sign to the Royal court that God is with them. And before the sun grows up, the nation, the two Kings around them are going to be destroyed. If that's how God shows his presence with his people, 
that how much more so, that is, it's, it's a heightening typologically, how much more so is God with his people than when the Son of God becomes incarnate in the womb of a literal virgin who gives birth? And so the context of Isaiah 7 isn't saying one day in the future this is going to happen, like long years from now. It's not about the Messiah in the first instance. It's about a son in the royal court. But in pattern fulfillment, the greater Emmanuel comes in the actual virgin, the perpetual virgin until after Jesus is born. Then, then her and Joseph have natural relations and conceive other children naturally. Um, if Isaiah 7 is about you know, a sign that God is with us, and that sign comes to the virgin, then Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of it. He is not just a sign of God's presence. He is literally Emmanuel. He is literally God, which we saw last week, with us in terms of human form. Luke 1, 34 through 35. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Uh, very important. Uh, the Holy Spirit does this, the power of the Most High, the Holy One to be born. So this Son is already set apart. He's already holy. And he's called the Son of God. Now, the word overshadow uh, is a very rare word. And so when Luke writes the word overshadow, he's using a Greek word, which was used in one place when the Greeks translated the Old Testament out of Hebrew. They use this word that Luke uses, that the angel says, overshadow in one place. And that's the language that's the word, the, the context is in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle has been built and the glory cloud of God fills the tabernacle so that the people can't work anymore. And we're told that the cloud overshadowed the tabernacle. And so that language being used here with the holiness word group as well, what the angel is saying, and this is absolutely fascinating, is the angel is saying to Mary, your womb is the new holy of holies. And her womb is the holy of holies uh, because the holy of holies was where God was. And her womb is now where God is because of the son that she's bearing. It's an incredible thing. And so later on, you know, in Luke 2, you know, we talk about, you know, there are shepherds out in the fields, you know, abiding at night, keeping, over, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Glory there is the Shekinah cloud glory of God. That is, it's the glory of God that makes something holy. It's the glory of God that made something the holy of holies. And so amazingly, what you're actually being told is this farm field with sheep and shepherds was the holy of holies because that's where God was. And then they go and they find the holy of holies in a manger. It, God is the one who sanctifies places by his presence. There was nothing special about the room in the temple that made it holy. It was only the presence of God, which is why in Ezekiel 10, the presence of God can leave the tabernacle or it can, it can withdraw from the temple and it's no longer holy. The temple can now be destroyed by the Babylonians. It, it, there was nothing special about it except God decided to live there and God can decide to live in the womb of a virgin. 
God can decide to live in a sheep field. God can decide that anywhere he wants to sanctify by his glory is the holy of holies. Now, that also means then that interesting enough, what you have here in Luke is the coming together of the deity and humanity. You, you have the glory and the holy of holies in the womb of the virgin because she is conceiving and gestating this child. Now, beyond just the conception then, and you could add that you know, Jesus was born you know, in, in a normal way, you know, his life shows his humanity as well. So conception carried in the body of his mother, Luke 2, 7 indicates that he was born through a normal uh, delivery. Luke 2, 40 is actually a really important text. We'll, we'll see. It says, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. He grew and he became strong. Now we'll see this with wisdom as well. But here you have a little bit of the hinting of paradox and mystery. If, if Jesus is, if Christ is fully God, as we looked at last week, then one of his attributes is that he's omnipotent. He's perfectly strong. But here we're told the child grew and became strong. That is, two-year-old Jesus was not as strong as Joseph. Five-year-old Jesus was not as strong as Mary. And so his body grew the way a normal body grows. He couldn't lift 5,000 pounds when he was 16. He could never lift 5,000 pounds in terms of physical body. He had a real human physical body. Then Matthew 4, 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I mean, the, the only reason that we get hungry, well, there's a couple of them. In, in our Western culture, you know, we tend to get hungry because we're bored. Uh, but in you know, most parts of the world, you know, if you get hungry, it's because your body is requiring uh, a certain number of calories. You, know, you, you need to actually replenish the stockpile of nutrition and energy in your body so that your body can work. So you only grow hungry when you're experiencing natural human processes. And so Jesus, after not eating and drinking, his body is hungry naturally because it's a genuine human body. You know, when he's on the cross, John 19, 28, he says, I am thirsty. And so hunger and thirst, again, are, are products. They're, they're experiences of a, a natural human body. Luke 8, 23, as they sailed, he fell asleep. You know, John 4, 6, Jesus, tired as he was from his journey. You know, so, so going on a long journey, tired Jesus out. Um, you know, if you went camping with Jesus uh, and, you know, there was a portage, he, he would be tired just like you would be. Like his muscles could work. And, and at some point, his physical body needed food, uh, liquid, and rest in order to recuperate. It was, these are marks of genuine humanity and genuine human experience. Now, if you go, so if you go through the Gospels, then you can see even more of these. Like there's, there's a whole sort of panoply or variety of human traits and experiences. Now, even after the resurrection, though, Jesus has a physical body. This is important to understand as well. Uh, so in Luke 24, 37 through 39, and I know that you just probably read this, these, this set of verses because this last week you were supposed to read the gospel of Luke. And so probably most of you were just finishing up 
Luke 24, the last chapter. I'm going to guess you're all keener. So probably everyone was reading these verses on Tuesday to be nice and ahead or else just finishing up at 929. Uh, so you've just read these verses no matter when it was. They were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So even after the resurrection, Jesus' body, which was buried, is raised in glory and it has flesh and bones. So he is even after death, even after resurrection, he has a real human body. And then Luke 24, 42 through 43, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it in their presence. So really, the, the, the fact that Jesus' body is real, sort of genuine human body, his real human experiences is really not up for debate, you know, when you read the Gospels. But Jesus, and this becomes a little bit trickier, uh, Jesus also has a human mind and human emotions, at least the argument normally is. And you can pay attention to this because I'm going to ask you to assess it uh, afterwards. So Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and man. He grew in wisdom. Now, again, just like growing in strength is paradoxical with omnipotence, growing in wisdom would seem to be paradoxical with omniscience. Now, knowledge and wisdom aren't the same thing, I grant you. But one of the attributes of deity is, is um, omnisapience. All, he's, he's all wise as well. So how do you understand this? How does Jesus grow in wisdom? Well, if nothing else, again, it means that that six-year-old Jesus had to learn how to read. He, he, he had to learn how to think. He had to learn to be rational. He had to learn how to be reasonable. He had to learn facts of history and mathematics and all of the rest. Now, I mean, presumably he was a pretty bright student, right? But he still had to learn these things. He grew in wisdom. In Mark 13, 32, but about, speaking about the, when the sun will return at the consummation, but about that day or hour, no one knows not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Here, Jesus, before going to the cross, acknowledges that there are things he doesn't know. This tends to be uh, one of the flagship verses which is trotted out um, by various uh, cults and sects and also by skeptics. Uh, anyone who wants to, to sort of deny the deity of Christ, this is a verse which, which will often get, get brought out. Look, Jesus can't be God because God knows everything. And clearly Jesus himself acknowledges that he doesn't know this. He does not know the hour of his return. And in terms of human emotions, uh, John eleven thirty five says, Jesus wept. Uh, John 12, 27, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Matthew 26, 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. And maybe you know what it's like to, to pray things with fervent cries and tears and it's something that jesus experienced uh here in this world his soul was troubled my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death now some people want to argue that 
these kinds of statements prove that Jesus was a human being because of his sort of emotional life and emotional state. It's a very common claim. Um, in terms of assessment, though, how much evidence is that for humanity? That is, so does the does the emotional life of Jesus actually prove humanity, or does God have emotions as well? Uh, so how would you how would you assess this? How helpful is this sort of data in terms of establishing the humanity of Christ? Well, scripture clearly says that God has emotion, but the question is, is God using that because that's something we as humans can relate to, or is his emotional response the same as our emotional response? Yeah, so I mean, the scriptures are pretty clear that God has emotions. And this has been something which is, you know, debated throughout uh, history and, and is still being, this is one that's actually being reformulated a lot by Christians, uh, evangelical scholars today. And it's the impassibility of God. I mean, does God actually experience emotions or not? How does he actually experience emotions? Um, can he be affected and influenced negatively by various things? So, so can God actually experience painful emotions? Uh, what does that mean? Well, it seems slightly difficult to, to read certain Old Testament passages as only anthropomorphic or anthropopathic. So, before the flood, God sees, you know, how wicked the world is and says, you know, the, he was, the Lord God was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. That's a pretty strong metaphor. I mean, if that's, if God doesn't have any sort of emotional life, that's a pretty, I'm not quite sure how, how you're supposed to interpret that. You know, he was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. That seems to mean that he was grieved and his heart was filled with pain. I mean, I don't know how else you read that. And so, although then granting that for us, you know, in terms of uh, humanity, we experience feelings, but God doesn't experience feelings because God doesn't have a physical body. So God experiences emotions, but our emotions are, are tied to physical processes and chemicals and things like that. So God's isn't. He doesn't have the same kind of physical feelings. So we don't, can't really fully imagine what it's like to exist or for God to have emotions. Uh, does anyone else want to say something? Yep, Colin, go ahead. Oh, hi. Hello. Oh, all oh, the vacuum's going too, sorry. See ya. Uh, would it be, um, can we say that some of the emotions of Jesus are like a response to his physical presence? Like he's on the cross, suffering spiritually and physically. So, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a, that's a, like he's incarnate as a human being nailed to a cross. So his emotion is really... It's not disconnected from his physical incarnation. Are there other instances that like how it could you say his emotions are like all bound up with his physical body? So in, if that's the case, it, it proves his humanity. Is that uh, that's a question? Well, it's kind of a statement and a question. What do you think? 
Yeah, so I, I'd say I think one of the things that uh, you might want to suggest is that there, there's a difference, of course, between what what statements prove and what statements are compatible with. And so certainly, I think if you have a sort of a pre-understanding of Christ as fully God and fully man, then if you have that understanding of him in terms of humanity, then you can make those sorts of connections that yes, so as a human being, if he's nailed to the cross, there's going to be certain sort of that's going to be connected to his emotional life as well, because he's an integrated human being. So part of the question, this is actually something which comes up in discussions historically, is what's the framework? How, how much is the framework established through these types of verses rather than how much um, does the framework that we establish create interpretation of these verses? So does the fact that Jesus uh, claims to have emotions or does the fact that the gospels depict Jesus emotionally, does that prove his humanity or is an emotional life sort of equally compatible with deity and humanity? And it's only when you accept the humanity of Christ in from other sources that you then interpret these emotional expressions as the expressions of genuine humanity, or does it flow back and forth? Right. Uh, so sort of a, there's always these questions in terms of analysis that is how much does the hypothesis dictate our interpretation of data versus the data going into the construction of the hypothesis itself. So because we only have so much time, oh my goodness, we only have so much time uh, and this has already gone on too long. So what I want to do is we'll just, we'll just skip to it and say, yes, Colin, I think you're right. Uh, you know, those sorts of experiences do demonstrate uh, sort of the, the tie in between the humanity of Christ in terms of physicality and emotional life and presence. Um, but it'd be a longer argument to put those things together quite that way. But I think in the end, you've got it. So quickly then, uh, other statements that Jesus is a man. These are just direct statements. Uh, in Matthew 13, 56, the crowd say, aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So the people who are around him see him as a human being. They could be wrong. They're just part of the crowd. They didn't see him as God. But Peter says in Acts 2.22 on the day of Pentecost, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, etc. So Peter says Jesus was a man accredited by God to you. And then Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5, a very famous verse says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. And so even after the resurrection, our mediator between God and us is a man, Jesus Christ. Now, John in John, you know, John or first John 1 1 says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched this. We proclaim concerning the word of life, the so physicality there. John 1, 14, the word, the logos, we're talking about John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John 1, 14 connects this logos with incarnation. The word became flesh. So the word who is with God and who is God takes on human flesh. Um, Jesus himself, 
John 8, 40 says, as it is, you are looking for a way to kill me. A man who has told you the truth I heard from God. So Jesus himself says that he is a man. Now, this doctrine um, is actually very, very serious. So in 1 John 4, 2, 3, we're told that this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. This every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So the spirit of God testifies that Jesus is Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And so a denial of the humanity of Christ is actually uh, to enlist yourself with the spirit of Antichrist. Now, this is actually very interesting because what it means is that in the first century, John is writing to people, some of whom are hearing denials of the humanity of Jesus, which is entirely the opposite today. I mean, today people will grant that he was a man, but, but people will deny that he was God. In the first century, the opposite. People were arguing that he was divine, but they were denying that he was genuinely a human being. And there's a, there's a reason for this, um, which we will not get into because we are focused, uh, but you can look up Gnostics later and then, and then you'll understand what I mean. Uh, so the, the, the not, okay, I'm not going to talk about the Gnostics. I will not. I'll, I'll go on to say this. The first Christological heresy was called Docetism. And it comes from uh, the Greek word to appear. And the argument was that Jesus just appeared to be a human being, but he wasn't really a human being. It was a manifestation. It was an appearance. And part of this was tied to Gnostic doctrine. I'll give you just a little bit of it, maybe, um, where spirit was good. Spirit was the highest form of existence. And as you had emanations moving away from pure spirit, you, you, became, you, you, you became more and more embroiled in problems. And so physicality, material reality, the physical world was inherently corrupt compared to the material, or compared to the immaterial spiritual realm. And so the argument was because Jesus was you know, divine, he would not have become, he, he actually would not have been genuinely material because that materiality would have corrupted him who would have experienced corruption and so he appeared to be corporeal but he wasn't and so actually one of the things just off to the side this is just for free uh, one of the things that the incarnation does actually is the incarnation is probably the most important bit of evidence you could ever have for the goodness intrinsically of the material order the resurrection of the new heavens and the new earth is also that evidence, but it's based originally on the incarnation. How do we know that it's not bad to have a body? Well, because Jesus had a body. Jesus was a real human being with a real physical nature. So Jesus then was human, but sinless. He did not, in, he did not inherit guilt. He did not inherit corruption. He did not inherit a sin nature. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is speaking of imputation. John 8, 46, Jesus speaking to people who knew him saying, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Then Hebrews 4, 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And then 1 John 3, 5, but you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins, 
and in him is no sin. Now, obviously, some people uh, you know, would argue that at this point in history, you know, every human being sins. And so if Jesus doesn't sin, he's not fully a human being. Uh, probably the, the easiest response to that is that Adam and Eve were human beings before they sinned. So sin is actually, as much as every person is a sinner, this is interesting because we're, we, we, we take for granted something which is, which is wrong. And that is, we assume it's part of human nature to be sinful, but it's not. Sin is actually an abnormal condition that we're all born with. But sin is the oddity. Uh, sin and human nature are not natural companions. Uh, and so when the sin nature can be eradicated. And that's actually when you experience the fullness of your humanity. Sin is a negation. It's a privation. It's a limitation on what we really are. Sin hinders us. It pulls us down. It's not what we are actually designed to carry. And so for us, um, you know, we're, we're familiar with, with every human being in the world is a sinner. And we can take that as the normal condition of humanity, but it's not. Uh, it's actually an abnormality which plagues every one of us, but it won't forever. Also, people will often say, well, to err is human. Jesus was a product of his culture, and Jesus doesn't know everything. Look at Mark 13. And so Jesus would have been fallible. But again, um, making mistakes and erring, you know, we hear, you know, to err is human. Well, sure. But that's actually, again, not a necessary part of humanity. We are all capable of doing things without error, every one of us. So every one of us can, you know, say that one plus one is two, uh, you know, unless I was assigning points. And if I gave you one point and one point, I'd give you like 18 points or something. Uh, but we all know that one plus one is two. That's not an error. That That's absolutely, completely, 100% correct. And, and in fact, I can also, I can write an, an inerrant document. You know, I, I can write, um, you know, my name is Steve. That is, that statement contains no errors. That's simply what an, an what an what inerrancy means. It's the absence of errors. So we can all make statements which are completely true. You know, today is Saturday. That is a completely true statement. We would take language normally. And so to say that Jesus had to commit errors is actually inaccurate. You can be a human being and not commit any errors whatsoever. Errors are an accidental feature of our finiteness, but it's not absolutely necessary. Every error we make is contingent. And so it's entirely possible to be a human being, particularly if you're a human being who's also God, uh, to not make any errors whatsoever. Now, just, just before we go on to sort of draw some of this together now in terms of uh, theological importance, any uh, questions or comments or, or things you'd like to say? Could you just um, clarify, okay, we're all capable of living without error, but we're not capable of living without sin. Is that correct? So what is the difference between the sin and the error? Sure. I mean, so in, in practicality, so, so logically speaking, logically speaking, in the strictest sense, 
we are capable of living without error. So committing errors is not a necessary part of humanity. Now, practically, we are all going to commit errors all the time. And we all know that, none of us. Um, I'll, okay, I'll, even, I'll even include myself in this boat. None of us went through our entire education without you know, making at least one error at some point, right? So we know, practically speaking, every human being makes mistakes. We get things wrong. We all do. But that practical point doesn't negate the logical point that it is possible for human beings to do things that are inerrant. And so in that sense, you could have a perfect human being who never made mistakes. And, and Jesus obviously was that individual. Now, in terms of errors versus sins, we cannot avoid sinning because we're born with a bent towards sin. We're born with a heart that is rebellious against God. And so I'd say an error is a mistake. Now, some theologians actually argue that errors and mistakes are sins too, because it's the product of a disordered mental life, which is abhorrent to God. I think that's a strong overstatement. Um, I think there's certain things that, that a lot of us just aren't going to be able to master. So some people are, are brilliant in terms of fine arts. Other people are brilliant at math. Some are brilliant at everything, it seems. Um, but for most people, their minds, they're just not capable of understanding certain subjects very well. Some people are very good at learning languages. Uh, other people aren't. You know, some people can write really well. Other, other people can run really fast or, or whatever. So, so different types of people gravitate and, and excel in different subject areas. So there's, so I have no idea what I'm, I can't have, I have no idea what my point was uh, about that, except to say, I think we all know uh, that no matter what we excel in, you know, there's areas of weakness, areas where we make mistakes. Oh yeah, th those theologians say that every mistake is a sin. I just think that some people just aren't going to do well in certain areas. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a sin to not understand advanced physics or something like that. I mean, if it is, a lot of us had better stop studying period because you know, the more we learn, the more errors we make in terms of thinking in a lot of ways. So it's one thing to just cognitively not have your synapses fire properly so you bring about the wrong conclusion. I don't think that's a sin. Sin then would be culpable moral defiance of the law of God and God's will. So in that sense, um, an error, the way I'm talking about an error, there's lots of different types of errors actually, but the, the type of error I'm thinking of is specifically uh, intellectual and cognitive, whereas sin would be um, ethical and spiritual. I think that's the difference. That's the distinction I would want to make. And there's obviously then there's um, sort of a, a cross-pollination uh, cross there where sometimes moral rebellion against God does um, manifest itself in thought. There's, so how we think, theses we will accept how we bend facts to suit our agenda and all of the rest. Uh, our mental life can try to shape reality in certain ways according to the rebellious, sinful desires of our heart. So there is a movement back and forth. And, and cer certainly then some mistakes in theology, for example, can be predicated on sin. And then how we think changes how we behave and all of the rest. So, so it, it's not rigidly separated, but just in terms of um, how Jesus could be without sin and also without error, that's really all I'm sort of looking at right now. Is that helpful? Probably not. You're nodding your head. Yes. Yeah. So when I say, thank you. Not, 
So when I say it's probably not helpful and you nod your head, yes. <laughs> no, no, I nodded to it's probably helpful. It is helpful. Thank you. Welcome. Now, just so you know, like that was a complete error. Everything I said was wrong. But anyway, well, at least it wasn't a sin. Uh, okay, anything else? All right. There is one question there. Yeah, check the chat. There's two questions there for you. Oh, yeah. I'm not very good at this. So everyone, just take a coffee break. It's going to take about five minutes to read these here. From Chuck Norris. I better not get this one wrong. Okay, so how do we know that Jesus did not make any errors? Was it necessary that he did not make any errors or just not sin? Another one, I was wondering something similar. If Jesus was perfect, still had to learn, how did you not make any, how did he not make any errors or sins? So if Jesus ever thought two plus two equals five, he could not take away our sin on the cross. Hmm. So that's actually very interesting. So this is one of the things that I do, which is designed to get you to think and to not simply accept everything that I say. So if I just said, which I did, that you can make errors and errors aren't the same thing as sinning, then could you still be sinlessly perfect and then be a fitting savior and substitute, a substitutionary sacrifice if you made errors? Well, it would seem that you could um, because you could make errors and still be sinlessly perfect. So the question then is, did Jesus ever make any errors? Well, in terms of learning, does it mean that every time Jesus was taught something, he immediately grasped it? So would he always get, you know, 100% on every test, every question, for example? I'm actually inclined to say yes for this reason. Not because of the deity, but because there is something that we refer to as the noetic effects of sin. That is, all of our faculties with the sin nature, none of our faculties function without, with the sort of precision that they would if we, were not, if we were not sinners. So there is a sort of a general pull on our, on our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health owing to sin. And so I would have a hard time uh, imagining that if I have a hard time imagining that Jesus would have placed third in his school, for example, uh, I have a hard time imagining that if a neighbor kid could get a hundred percent of the math quiz, Jesus would get too wrong. Now, maybe that's not, maybe there's nothing theological there. Uh, and my imagination is, is by no means the arbiter of reality I mean, I wish it, I wish it were sometimes, uh, life would be a little bit different. Um, but it, I, I, I do struggle to see Jesus having sort of an inferior intellect to anyone around him in any way. I would table that. I'll have to table that now though, as a question. And then I'd say, uh, just sort of just embarrassingly, you know, there's just a, there, there's just a lot of things I've never thought of. Right. I mean, uh, so I haven't really, I haven't really considered this before. So I me mean, just sort of rabbiting on about it. It's probably not very useful for anyone. Um, maybe school tests and examiners are tainted with sin. They, that's true too. Um, you know, 
that uh, actually this is one of the knocks on the IQ test, right? I mean, years and years ago, people were saying that the IQ tests were racist um, because there's no actually, there, there's just no way of actually sort of statistically and scientifically setting these sorts of things up. Anyway, uh, even in terms of language learning, it seems that errors are a natural part of learning because there'd be amoral versus moral errors. Yes, I, I think that's probably true as well. Uh, so we'd want to have our categories here. See, this is, this is the problem is, is at this point, what we really need is we really just need the opportunity to all be in the same room and to be able to discuss things. Um, that's what I'd really like. So there's different people with different levels of expertise here. And just so you know, when we were in Sunday school and we were having discussions, the times I tried to drag the discussions out and try to protract them with getting eliciting sort of different opinions was always because I needed more time to desperately try to think of something intelligent to say and, and always failed anyway. But this is one of those times where like, we really need to have a discussion about this so I can think it through um, because I've never thought this through before. Now, having said that, you won't be this, you, you will not be shocked about my ignorance. Um, so I'll just acknowledge it. I mean, even Jesus didn't know everything, Mark 13. So I, so it's okay for me not to know this as well. I will say this. It is vitally necessary. And this is really what I was talking about. I wasn't thinking so globally is that it is important to recognize that yes, Jesus was a cultural being. He existed in a certain culture, but that cultural uh, sort of milieu did not cause him to error in teaching, thinking, ethical behavior. So this is one of the knocks on Paul, for example. Maybe you, you read Romans 1 about same-sex relationships, and people will say, well, Paul only believed that because he, uh, because he was a product of his culture. You read, you know, the teachings of Jesus, um, basically all the teachings that we don't like. You say, well, that's because Jesus was a product of his culture. And so what we want to do is we want to insist, if nothing else, that when Jesus was speaking and teaching, he was teaching with the authority of God and never made an error in any of the statements that he, that he made, any of the propositions that he accepted. And so in this sense, actually with Paul or Peter, for example, we can actually, we can acknowledge that Peter and Paul undoubtedly did have all, did make all kinds of errors uh, in thinking, in reasoning and all of the rest. So, so their view of the world in terms of physical structure is probably very different. Their view of the, how the universe works, probably very different from what was actually accurate. But when the spirit guided them in their apostolic function, their writing, their products were without error. And so I think that's really what I'm insisting on with Jesus in terms of Jesus uh, teaching, Jesus speaking, everything we have recorded about Jesus in the gospel is without error and without sin. His entire life for sure is without sin, whether or not he can make an amoral error, uh, I don't know. And, and, and to Shona's point, you know, about um, language learning, this is something actually too that, that, that touches up against the doctrine of scripture. And that some people say, well, you know, the, the, the new time, the Bible contains um, solecisms and it contains ungrammatical statements and all of the rest. You want to say, well, yes, it does. And, and so like, little kids, you know, they, they'll, they'll, learn to um, say things 
in past in past tense, which is which is inaccurate in terms of English grammar because English has re- no one can possibly learn English grammar. Like it's just the most convoluted language in the world, with all of the exceptions that there are and all of the rest. You know, and so a little child can come up to you and say, you know, oh, um, Colin hitted me. I say, well, first of all, I've determined if that's true. But then you want to say, well, you know, hitted is not how we say these things. You know, like, it, it, what, what they've done is they've brilliantly in their own little brains, without ever having heard the word hitted, probably, they have, they have actually naturally combined the the physical action which happened to them with the normative way of expressing past tense and, and without ever having heard or read the word hitted their brain cobbles that together they hit it me it's actually genius like it, it's absolutely brilliant you know uh, they're, they're little linguistic structures now i actually know that shona knows about language so don't don't correct me if i'm making an error or even if i'm sinning just leave it alone okay um, but if it were me, I, like, I can't read the chat um, I'm, I, because I, I turned the chat off, but I think it's called the overgeneralization of the past tense rule. Um, if I remember my uh, introductory linguistics, uh, which I might not uh, terribly well, I didn't study it in English. So it, sometimes I can't quite do the, the mental translation that quickly. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's, it's absolutely genius, but you would, you would not say actually that the child is in error in one sense. That is, you can say he hitted me and it's not grammatically correct, but it, it can be the bearer of a proposition which is true. That is, that child might actually have been hit. And so you can also say, you know, in terms of, verna- there's different vernaculars, right? So someone says, oh, you know, I, can you can you run down to the store and buy me a loaf of bread? Someone says, you know, um, <laughs> I I no I I I ain't gonna go. Okay, well, is that regular grammar? Well, who decides what regular grammar even is? I mean, the grammar changes, the language changes. Then go back and read Shakespeare. Go back and read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and you almost can't. It's so different. Language changes. And, and so you can you can convey truth with irregular grammatical forms, right? Um, all right. So in terms of Jesus, then, yes, he could perhaps, you know, even speak in with ungrammatical statements. He can make ungrammatical statements and yet still convey truth. Anyway, I think it's time to move on. So let's carry on. And uh, unless there's any other, no, you know what? This isn't my fault. I don't bring these things up. So no more questions, no more comments. We're just going to move on. You guys are, it's not my fault if if you make a rabbit trail and then release the hounds to chase me down it. I refuse to accept responsibility for that. That's your error and moral rebellion. Mary, you don't have time for you. To, okay, Mary, go ahead. Do you want to say something? You're, well, you're leaning forward. Okay. I'm just going to turn off the cameras and the comments and just carry on. So why is this important then? Why is it important that Jesus is actually um, a human being? Wayne Grudem uh, in his Systematic Theology, a pretty helpful book. They just put out a a second edition, which is actually pretty helpful as well uh, in terms of an improvement. 
Grudem gives us seven reasons why the full humanity of Jesus is necessary. I would spend time talking about them, uh, but I don't have time. So first, uh, for representative obedience, for representative obedience. And this is not merely as example. That's another one. But Jesus is our covenant head. He is the second. He is the last Adam. Romans 5, 18 and 19 makes this very clear. So Jesus needs to be a human being to covenantally represent human beings before God. Adam was the first federal or covenant head uh, of the uh, people. Christ is also a covenant head of his people. And because his people are human beings, he needs to fulfill the covenant before God as a human being. Number two, uh, to be a substitute sacrifice, to be a substitute sacrifice. Uh, Hebrews 2, 16 through 17 shows that it's only a human being who can truly pay for human sin. And so where you have human beings who have sinned, only a human being can actually uh, make atonement for sin. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away human sin. Then First uh, Timothy 2, 5, which we already saw, number three would be to be the one mediator between God and man. You know, to, to bring God and man together, you need someone who is God and man. So actually, interestingly enough, the incarnation itself is the highest point of mediation. It's where God and man come together completely. And so Jesus is our mediator. Number four to fulfill God's original purpose for human beings to rule over creation, to fulfill God's original purpose for human beings to rule over creation. You see, look at the Genesis 1 creation mandate. Also, the book of Hebrews makes this important through sort of media through Psalm 8. Um, and this is one that I actually think is, is really, really worth meditating on. God's original purpose was for the human, for the human race to take proper, careful, non-exploitive, wise, stewarding ownership, not ownership, stewarding responsibility over the world. And we have in every way failed at that. But God's plan was always that human beings would be his vice regents with stewarding authority over creation. We forfeited that in terms of our sin. We botched the job. But all things will be put under Christ and in union with Christ in the new heavens and new earth. That role of humanity is restored to us because of what Jesus Christ has done. Number five, uh, to be our example and pattern. First John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. First Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So, Jesus shows us how to live as human beings, how to actually live in this world and honor God. Number six, uh, to be the pattern of our redeemed bodies, to be the pattern of our redeemed bodies. First Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. So his resurrection body is the model of our own when we're raised to life. And then number seven, to sympathize as our high priest, to sympathize as our high priest. So Hebrews 2.18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to, though, to help those who are being tempted. Now, there's a lot more. 
that we could add. There's a lot more to be said about every one of those things, but that that's not a half bad list. You know, when it comes to starting starting to think through why is it important that Jesus was an actual human being. Now, what we're going to do now is we're going to sort of cash this out theologically then. So the data is fully God and fully man. So how is this understood? How is this brought together? You, you have this raw data. How do you synthesize it? How do you formulate it? Well, in Orthodox Christology, the doctrine of the Trinity is one nature, three persons, three persons sharing one nature. The doctrine of Christ is two natures, one person. So Trinity is one nature, three persons. The doctrine of Christ is two natures, one person. Now, both of these doctrines are, are quite beyond human experience and, and frankly, quite beyond human comprehension and ability to formulate and analyze them. Um, but nonetheless, this is, this is sort of our, our orthodox Christology, two natures, fully God, fully man in one person. So we'll see a little bit, a little bit about the pathway here, but in 451 AD, uh, there's a there's a creed which was produced by a council called the Creed of Chalcedon, and it's ever since this day. So for about 1600 years now, this has been considered sort of the definitive creedal form on Christology. I mean, it's not the last word in Christology. It needs to be carefully understood. It, it can be reformulated in terms of nuance and exposition and all of the rest. But this was sort of the definitive statement of Christology, and, and every major branch of the church has acknowledged that this is an accurate representation of sort of the basic Christological position that the church should take. So the New Testament taught that Jesus was fully God and fully man. But then the big question was, how do you understand that? And there were a number of, pro, uh, of proposals for how we understand the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man some of which were, were insufficient, some of which were heretical, uh, some of which were, were condemned. And so battling through a lot of these false views, these false starts, led to Chalcedon. So we'll look at some of those false starts after. Uh, maybe that may not be the best pedagog way pedagogically, but that's what we're going to do. So first, we'll look at the creed of Chalcedon itself. So if there is a slide that can be shared on the screen. Look at that, well done, Stephanie, good job. Um, this is the Creed of Chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable, rational soul and body, consubstantial, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. And we, we won't go on just yet, okay? I just leave this slide up. According to uh, the manhood. Can you just go back to the first one, actually, Steph? Would that be okay? Perfect. Thank you. So, this statement up till now, this first half of it, um, it 
even if you don't fully, I mean, actually, I was gonna say, even if you don't fully understand all the language, but I know you do. So uh, the, even if you don't fully understand every nuance, it's important to see this is clearly setting out the fullness of both natures. Perfect in Godhood, Godhead, perfect in manhood. Truly God, truly man. Okay? Rational soul and body. Now, the word consubstantial just means of the same substance. So he is of the same substance as the Father. He's of the same substance as we are, according to humanity. He's begotten before all ages. So he's eternally the Son of God, but born of the very uh, of the Virgin Mary, who is um, the mother of God. Now this becomes this statement becomes debated. How do we understand that? Mary is the mother of God. It means one thing in Roman Catholicism and other things, you know, in evangelical theology. But nonetheless, I mean, this statement is, is absolutely pointing out the fullness of the deity, the fullness of the humanity. Okay, next slide. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same son and only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Now, if you are familiar with your heresies, you can recognize that basically all of the wording of this second part is chosen to refute a heresy of some kind that had been popular or had had, had its day, you know, in the first centuries of the church. Now, it's important to note that the two natures inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably the distinction of natures by no means being taken away by the union. The natures are not mixed up. So it is not like food coloring put into water. Uh, you do not have a hybrid. You don't have a third type of existence. I mean, it's a third type of existence, but it's not a third substance. So it's not a fusion of these two things together. So the attributes, the, the, this creed clearly says, the attributes of each nature are retained. So you don't lose the attributes of humanity. You don't lose the attributes of deity. They're not jumbled up. They're not mixed. They're not fused. They're separated. They're not confused. And they're not lost. And these two full natures are concurring in one person and one subsistence. That is, there are not two persons there are not, it's not as if Christ is a divine person and a human person. There is only one person, but there are two distinct natures, fully God and fully man. So, okay, Steph, you can drop that slide there uh, if you want. Thank you for that. Um so what leads up to this formulation? Well, first, obviously, we mentioned the New Testament taught the full humanity and deity of Christ, but trying to understand it was really hard. 
And as time went on, the theological position of the church was clarified. And, and, and I will say this, actually, I remember years ago um, when I was first reading systematic theology, and I remember um, reading a book on systematic theology, and it would talk about these different perspectives on Christology from the ancient world. And they'd say, you know, and the author would say things like this position, you know, believes that Jesus, you know, was uh, fully God and fully man. But in bringing these, uh, these two natures together, a third type of substance was created. And I'd read that. I think well, that makes sense. And then the author would say, and of course, this was the heresy that was condemned at, and you go, oh, okay, well, I don't believe that. You know, that, that's not how I view Jesus. Of course, that's wrong. And then you get a, a view that, you know, Jesus was fully man, but he was a man controlled by the divine mind. He didn't have a full human mind. It was a divine mind. You can't have two minds in one person. You go, well, that makes sense. And so he's sure Jesus was a real human, except that he was controlled by the divine mind. And you read a little farther and the other says, now, of course, this was the heresy that was condemned at this council, you know, and in the span of about 45 minutes, I was a heretic three times, right? Because this is not easy. And, and so I think there's a, I think all of us basically take for granted, we live so far down the pipe in terms of church history. We have the formulation index. We have the formulation memorized, fully God, fully man. We see no problem with that. But when you actually work from the biblical data, it's really hard to start piecing it together in ways that don't distort one way or the other. So uh, a few more common but insufficient Christologies. First, it's called Arianism. And Arianism uh, is drawn from the teaching of a man named Arius, although we're not quite sure exactly what Arius himself taught versus how his opponents represented his teaching and what his, some of his more extreme disciples said you know, sort of in his name. So Arianism was the first really strong denial of the deity of Christ. And Arianism held that Jesus was like God, but that he wasn't God. So that he was divine in a sense, but he wasn't absolutely equal to God in terms of substance. The argument was that Jesus was the first creator, the Christ, the son was the first created being. And the first created being who then, you know, first or Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And so the firstborn was taken, not in its proper sense of authority and rule, but in the sense of temporality, that is, he comes into existence. And then Proverbs 8, Proverbs 8, 12 through 31 uh, describes wisdom in a personified way. And several times as wisdom was brought forth into existence, a lot of the early church fathers connected wisdom in Proverbs 8 with, with Christ, the Son, which then created some problems. So if you're interpreting wisdom as the Son, and the Son is brought forth or sort of created as the first of God's works, then you run into some trouble. So Arius argued that the Son was like God. He was of a similar substance to God but he wasn't equal to God. He didn't share the fullness of the divine nature. Apollinarianism was a view that denied that Christ had a human mind or spirit. So this is the one I mentioned where he had a human body, but only a divine mind and a divine will. And, and this in a lot of ways actually seems to make sense because one of the hardest things to determine is how can the son one person, how can the son have a 
full divine, have the full mind of deity? How can he be omniscient and also be a person who has a limited, circumscribed, finite mind? How can he have, how can the son have the mind of God and a human mind as well? How is that possible? And so this, this answer just denied the human mind of Jesus. Yet other people in response have said, the, the problem with this formulation, I mean, there's a few, but the real problem is that if he doesn't have a human mind and will, he's not fully human. And Which led to what I think is, if, if, you, know, you don't need to take away anything else from all of this except this. This might be useful. Thinking through this approach to Christology caused the formulation, uh, caused this sort of theological axiom to be formulated, and it's this. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. Whatever is not assumed is not redeemed. Meaning, uh, if Jesus didn't, if, if the Son didn't assume to himself a part of our human nature, then that part of our human nature can't be redeemed. So if he didn't have a human body, our human body could not be redeemed. If he didn't have a human mind, our human minds could not be redeemed. Whatever isn't assumed by the Son is not redeemed by the Son. And so if we as human beings are fully redeemed, then that redemption requires him taking upon assuming a, the fullness of human nature, and that includes a human mind. Now, uh, there are other views, you know, monophysitism and Nestorianism and other her assorted heresies, which we uh, will simply skip for now because we don't have time to get through all of them. And I'm slightly skeptical that any of you are Nestorians anyway. Not convinced. I mean, some of you might be, but uh, I'm a little bit doubtful in the majority instance. Uh, all right. Just a couple thoughts from a couple of theologians then, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Uh, Bruce Lewis and Gordon Demarest um, or sorry, Gordon Lewis and Bruce Demarest, rather, mix up their first names, I believe. Um, they, they say this, what unites the two natures is that both may be predicated of the one actual person. So the humanity and the deity are always kept separate, except that the one person of the sun operates with both natures. And this is what we talk about in theology. Some of you may, may be familiar with the term, you've heard the term hypostatic union. The hypostatic union, a, a hypostasis is just a center of personality. And so, you know, you are a hypostasis. You are a person. The hypostatic union is that the one person, the one hypostasis of the sun brings together the two natures. So the, the natures are united in the one hypostasis. The one person operates in two natures. So they then go on to say, in terms of contradictory um, properties and attributes, some people say, well, well, the sun can't be both fully God and fully man because human beings are finite. God is infinite. God is omniscient. Human beings are finite in knowledge. God is omnipotent. Human beings experience weakness. Jesus experienced weakness, etc. And he says, it's almost like some people say, you have a circle and you have a square. And those shapes, those geometrical shapes, actually contain um, contradictory characterizations. So a circle does not and cannot have right angles. 
but a square definitionally has to have four right angles. And so how can you say, well, you know, the humanity, the deity, like a circle and square, they can't be brought together because they actually have contradictory uh, logical properties. This is true to a point. Well, it's, you know, it is true at one level. But there are also logical relationships that are we call subcontrary relationships. And that's where different things have different properties, yet they are combinable without losing those properties. So for example, you could, you could draw a square large enough to draw a circle inside of that square. Or you can draw a circle large enough to draw a square inside of the circle. And, and what you've done is you haven't lost the attributes of those individual objects, but you have simply combined them into a larger geometrical shape. That is, these certain things are combinable in terms of pictures. And so what you have then now is you have a square and a circle which form one object visually while they retain their own attributes. And so certain things which are sort of diagnostically contradictory can actually stand in subcontrary relationships because they're combinable. They're, they're combinable in a wide variety of ways. So there are certain things that do not, again, in a subcontrary logical relationship, you don't violate the law of non-contradiction. And that's important. One other thing to say, uh, I mean, there's, there's a lot more to say. I'll give myself two. I'll give myself the luxury of two. One, very quickly. Um, natures don't act. Only persons act. And so sometimes the person of the sun is acting through his human nature. And sometimes he's clearly acting through his divine nature. But the humanity doesn't do anything. And even the deity doesn't do anything. It's the person who does something. And so when you act, your human, your, your nature isn't acting. You are acting in your nature. It, it is your subjective conscious ego that acts. And you act through your human nature. The sun acts through his divine nature and the son acts through his human nature. So that whatever Christ does, we can say it is the person of Christ. So does Christ die on the cross? Yes, it's the person of Christ who dies on the cross. The deity doesn't die. The humanity dies, but the one person dies. How? Because the person acts through both natures. So whatever you can ascribe to one nature, you can ascribe as an experience to of the person who's operating in both distinct natures. So there's a sense in which the person dies and the person doesn't die. Yes, go ahead. Quick question. So um, the transfiguration, for example, would that maybe be you know, one case where you would see um, the deity of Jesus revealed in his person, whereas the majority of the time you see his human nature in him? Because like there was a, a physical manifestation of, of his deity that would that was very different for the people who witnessed it. Yeah, so I think you'd say uh, in the transfiguration, what you see is the person of the son revealing 
part of his divine nature. Whereas the person of the son is normally revealing his glory in a veiled sense through his human nature. So when people see him, right, you're right, they see his human nature. The son is, uh, is acting and being perceived in his human nature and in the transfiguration. The son, the person of the son is revealing some of the attributes of his divine nature. I think that's very fair to say. Yes. Um, one more thing then. Millard Erickson, uh, who's written a, an evangelical theology, which is widely used, just makes a, a pretty helpful point. And, and he basically says this. The very fact that Jesus was fully God and fully man, the very fact that he is one person in two natures is proof that it's not logically contradictory because things that are logically contradictory can't happen. And so the very fact that it's actual means that it's possible, right? And so I think sometimes too, when we're dealing with with God and we're dealing with some of these things which go a little bit beyond our ability uh, to understand, you know, you, again, you look at the biblical data, what's the biblical data? It's that he was fully God and fully man. And the very fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man means that it's possible for one person to be fully God and fully man, even if we can't quite understand it perfectly. And obviously we can't. Um, although I'll just say this, then Colin will have his question and then we'll be done for the day. Um, and if you don't like any of this and you'll be done for life, you don't need to come back next week. No one's forcing you. Uh, it is also important to recognize in terms of the incarnation that it's sometimes said, you know, it, you can't imagine us being, uh, incarnate as a worm or something. You know, well, well, yes, that's, that's true. Um, but don't forget that human beings were created in the image of God in the first place. And so there is a correspondence between the design of human beings and God's plan for redemption. So there's a sense which you want to say, like human, human nature, in a sense, is like a glove to fit the hand of deity. That is, it is we are created to correspond to God in various, in various important ways. And so the fact that there's this correspondence between us as the image bearers of God allows for the incarnation in a way which no analogy will ever work, us becoming incarnate as, a, as, a, as an ant or whatever. Those analogies will never work the same way because there is nothing in the world which bears our image the way we bear the image of God. All right, Colin, go ahead. Unmute. Hi. Hello. Thinking of that line in the Charles Wesley hymn, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And I wonder, maybe he was on to something there using that phrase. Like, I, uh, it feels kind of strange to me to say that, you know, the humanity died on the cross, but God well, in some sense, God did not die, but like I think of Hebrews, it says he, the son of God, partook of flesh and blood so that he could taste uh, through death might destroy the one who has the power of death. So he, God, the son, partook of flesh and blood so that he, God, the son, now the person of Christ, through death, destroyed the one who has the power of death. God still, and, and another phrase is he tasted death in, uh, earlier in Hebrews. Like that's God, 
the Son incarnate. So uh, I'm just expressing like it is a mystery. Like how can it be? You know? Yeah. And, uh, no, I agree with you. I mean, I I know people who who have argued we shouldn't sing that hymn because it's theologically inaccurate. I mean, I can tell you, you can basically. Any song that's ever been sung in a church, you can find someone who will say you shouldn't sing it because of theological inaccuracies. Whereas I tend to have a little bit more of a, of a liberal tendency that way. I think you can often tell what someone meant to say. If you, if you were not going to engage in things in church that contain errors, you could never listen to preaching. You just never listen to anyone preach and teach ever. I mean, the whole thing's riddled with errors. Now, I mean, you do your best to avoid the obvious ones. Like if you were started singing a hymn about how, you know, God doesn't exist, you know, might want to correct that a little bit. But yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, we, we can strain out, we can, we can parse things out far too finely. So does God die? First of all, deity can't die, granted. But does the second person in the Trinity experience death? Yeah, so there's no incarnation. The whole thing's a joke. So absolutely, I, mean, I think you can sing that with full awareness of what you're singing, that the person of the son experiences death. It's his human nature that dies, but it's the, it's the second person of the Trinity. He's the only person. The hu humanity doesn't experience death. Humanity is a collection of attributes. It's the person in the nature who experiences things, not the nature itself. So the human nature makes it possible for the divine son to experience death, you could say. So yeah, you should have no problem seeing that. Plus in, in Acts, you know, we're told that um, God purchased the church with his blood. Well, does God have blood? Apparently, according to that text, God has blood. God shed his blood to purchase the church. Why? Because it's the person of the son. All right, that's um, that's overtime. And I know that... Uh, getting correspondence people saying that they actually wanted less time not more they wanted to end early not go late so i apologize to everyone um i'm going to blame all of you for asking questions that took too long to answer all right who's in charge now <laughs>